always a high lectern here for Welsh people. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you. Well, it's good to be with you today uh, and to share with you the Word of God. The Word of God is powerful. Hello. I'm fine. You're going to be better. Hello. Yeah. I'd like you to turn with me, please. There are a number of scriptures that I want to share with you today. The topic of what I'm sharing on is called the God of the Second Touch. So the first reading is from the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation. Chapter 3, from verse 14. To the angel or messenger of the church in Laodicea, write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. That's the first reading. The second one is found in Mark's Gospel, chapter 8. Mark, chapter 8. And reading from verse 22. This one is from the King James Version. And he cometh to Bethsaida, and they bring a blind man unto him, and besought him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town, and when he had spit on his eyes, and put his hands upon him. He asked him if he could see. And he looked up and said, I see men as trees walking. After that, he put his hands again upon his eyes and made him look up, and he was restored. He saw every man clearly. And he sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into the town, nor tell it to any in the town. And Jesus went out and his disciples into the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And by the way, he asked his disciples, saying unto them, Whom do men say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But some say, Elias and others, one of the prophets. 
And he said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Peter answered and said unto him, Thou art the Christ. And he charged them that they should tell no man of him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected of the elders and the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. Mark's gospel is made up of 16 chapters. What I'm going to share with you mainly comes from chapter 8, which is the fulcrum or the hinge of the book. Something happens in this particular chapter in the life of Jesus and His disciples that was going to change them forever and was going to change the course of his ministry. This is one of the two miracles that are mentioned only in, the, in Mark's gospel and in no other gospel. Chapter 7 is the healing of the deaf and dumb man, and this one is the healing of a blind man. These are the only two miracles recorded in Mark's gospel that do not appear in any other gospel, and therefore they are of significance to Mark. It's also a story that many people who disparage God's ability to heal will pounce on this particular text to say, well, Jesus didn't heal everyone immediately. It took two touches. I'm going to say to you today that it took two touches because he wanted this miracle to be accomplished in two touches, not one. It's very difficult to believe that Jesus couldn't do it in one when he was the cause of the creation of the whole world. Very difficult to believe that he couldn't do it in one when he raised people from the dead, and he himself was to rise from the dead. And therefore, there's something about this story that we need to learn from. What is he trying to show us? So let's go and share some thoughts from as we read it through. Verse 22, he comes to Beth Saida. Now, we know from the Gospels that at least, um, let's see, 25% uh, of the disciples came from this town. Philip, Andrew, and Peter came from this particular town. Bethsaida, however, is also mentioned in the Bible. When Jesus speaks of it, it's woe unto you in Matthew 11. For if the miracles that have been performed in you had been performed in even Sodom and Gomorrah or Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented, but you didn't. 
They experienced many powerful acts of God, but they didn't change their lives. In other words, you can see many miracles, but miracles in themselves are not the answer. They are part of the answer. The healing of a body is a wonderful thing for you to experience, for you to know the goodness of God. It can happen to anyone, whether they're walking with God or not. But the reason for it is for God to display His goodness to you or to me, and so doing, the goodness of God will lead us to repentance. It's not a good thing for a person to see the miracle power of God in their body to be healed and and to continue in their sinful ways. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That's all of us. Nobody exempt. Irrespective of your color, or your culture, or your nationality, or your religion, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the purpose of Jesus Christ coming into the world was to save people like that. He did not come. He said himself, I've not come for the righteous people, because in reality there aren't any. I've come to save sinners of whom I once was. Please understand, I once was. Do I look dry? It was an AI who went to the pool. His name was Kerry. My wife looked at me and she said, are you going in again? When you understand what baptism, every time I see it, I'd like to go in again. For I understand more about baptism now than I did when I was baptized. But one thing I've come to see about water baptism is this. Before you get into the pool, your sins have been removed. And uh, when you go in here, it's called burial time. The person who has gone into the pool has already had their sins forgiven, and they've died with Christ, and they're dead people. And the sooner you get buried, the better. So Kerry went into the pool today, and Kerry came out a new Kerry. And he was glad to see me, and I was glad to see him. It's always good, as I say often, when you're baptizing people, Hold them down long enough (laughs) so they appreciate coming up. (laughs) So Kerry was glad to come up today. That's what resurrection is about. But he came to Bethsaida, and they, people, bring him a blind man And those people blind besought Jesus to touch him. And Jesus took the man, led him by the hand, and led him out of the town. 
That was an act of grace towards Bethsaida. They were already going to be judged because they did not believe after all the miracles that had been done in them. And Jesus was showing them grace. I'm not going to add this alongside the other things as an extra judgment on you. He takes them away from the people who brought him. Can I say this? There are times in your life and mine when God needs to take us away from people who in their emotions want you to be healed, but emotions are not the reason God heals you. Let's give you an example where emotions play a lot and a big part in the life of Jesus. How many of you have ever heard the story of the raising of Lazarus? The raising of Lazarus. Did you get that? Was that in Portuguese then, or it was? I would talk to you in Portuguese, but not all the people here understand Portuguese. <laughs> um, you remember the story of Lazarus. Now, Lazarus was sick. And Jesus had a report about him. The report said, your friend Lazarus is sick, and the disciples said to him, we must immediately go, and you must heal him. And he said, no, we'll wait a while. So he waited for a couple of days, and then a report came again. Lazarus is dead. So his disciples said, no point in going. Jesus said, time to go. What for? Well, he's only sleeping. So he goes and he raises Lazarus from the dead. The disciples wanted to respond to the crisis with Lazarus through emotions. Jesus responded to the case of Lazarus because he knew it was what the Father was doing. Nothing will happen until it's in time with my Father. It's vitally important, whether you're Portuguese, whether you're English, whether you're from Finland or wherever, that today we are people that are being led by the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit always leads us on time. But Jesus leads this man out of the town, away from his friends, and he looks at the man. Now, something happens here that um, doesn't seem very nice. He spits on him. Do you understand that in Portuguese? Yes. It's something that you'd see on a, sometimes on a football field. It's the worst kind of thing that you can do, to spit on someone. It's not 
I don't like you. It's worse than that. It's like you're just scum. But for Jesus, it was going to be a prophetic sign. That's what he read in Revelation. God does not like in Revelation people either. He doesn't like you being lukewarm. He would prefer us to be either hot or cold. Not lukewarm. God hates mixture. And Jesus spits in this man's eyes and touches him and then says to the man, what do you see? And how does the man respond? I see men as trees, mixture. I cannot see clearly. I see men as trees walking. I can see, but not clearly. It's mixture. But there's already been a prophetic act towards him to simply say, I'm going to solve that problem. Can I say this to you as I go around the world traveling, and I'm so glad to see my fellow traveling ministries here. One Italian, yes? Buongiorno. <laughs> see my friends who are traveling ministries? That when you're in sit situations, we're always encountering things that are very different to the way that we live or our culture is. But the kingdom of God only has one culture. That's why Christians across the world are able to get together, provided they can see clearly. But we are living in the world where the world is not clear. It's mixture. And tragically, the church has become a company of people who are not clear. The Bible is very clear on what is right and what is wrong. Let me give you an illustration. When at university many years ago, I had to do, I had to do a kind of a test in a, uh, on a mathematics paper. Um, I, I wasn't very good at mathematics, but uh, we had to mark certain papers of people or younger people who were doing this test. And I looked at the papers and saw this particular young man had written. I thought, his answer is wrong. So I put a red mark down and went down the paper and saw that was wrong and went down there, uh, that was wrong. So I just put red marks down, wrong. So at the end of the test, I was marking a paper of a younger person, but I equally was being 
tested by the professor. So when we finished marking the papers, uh, 15 minutes later, the, pe the professor said, uh, is there a Mr. Jones in the class? I thought I scored highly. He said, would you come here, please? So I went there and he said, now, uh, these red marks, what are they there for? Well, I said, they're there to indicate to the young man that he was wrong. He answered the question, it was the wrong answer. Well, you shouldn't do that. We are trying to help these young people psychologically. They don't want to see red all over the place. But I said he was wrong on that question, and wrong on that question, and wrong on that question. How will he learn if he doesn't know what is wrong? And I've given him ticks where he's right. Well, they are not to see lots of red on the paper. So he said, you can either remark the paper, or there's a possibility you could fail the test. I said, I'd rather fail the test than mark what is wrong to be right. I scraped through the test. That was for me the beginning to understand in education that there were certain things that I would deem to be right and were universal right and accepted to be right, but now they are not as right as they were. There were things that were wrong, universally accepted to be wrong, but now we're not as wrong as we thought were wrong. And over the years, one now discovers things portrayed by the news media that things that are right, as I watch it and say, it's wrong. I was asked the other day with regard, what is your position with regards to gay people? I said, what do you mean, what is my position? Well, for people who are living that way, I said, it's a sin. Just like adultery is. Just like covetousness is. But sins can be forgiven. We must not say that things are not wrong when they are wrong according to the Word of God. But at the same time, we are not here to condemn people. We are here to see people saved. There isn't anything a person cannot be saved from. Further on in that same university, uh, coming up more like to my senior years, or just about to leave, I was in the theological class because that is what I was studying. And the professor who was there was also a professor that taught me when I was, when I was at school. He didn't like me. I don't know why, because I, I liked me. 
But in this particular class that particular morning, he said this, there are certain people who actually believe in miracles today. There are none so blind as those who will not see. He said, is there anyone in this class who believes in miracles? Well, I had some evangelical colleagues who were in the Christian Union, and I thought, surely they'd raise their hand, but nobody raised their hand. So he looked around the room as if to say, ah, my teaching has done good. And suddenly, I wanted to do it slowly. I wanted him to experience pain. I wanted him to know there is somebody still here who believes in miracles. Yeah. Now he thought he'd set the trap. He said, Jones, still here then? He said, yes, sir. Tell us all, why do you believe in miracles? Well, sir, I saw one last night. The night before I'd been in an evangelistic crusade where the evangelist was praying for people who were sick. And there was a lady there in our days, they called it, she had a growth, it was called a wen or a goiter. And the evangelist kind of put his hand here and suddenly his hand went. So I told him, He said nothing. He couldn't say anything. No. Here was a personal witness to a fact and an act that had taken place in the name of Jesus. It wasn't so much about the testimony of the miracle. It was the fact that someone had to stand up and say, despite all that was going on, to stand up and say, I believe. There is much happening in our world today due to the silence of the majority. Not the silence of the minority. The minority allowed, and the majority remained silent. And the majority remain silent because they've lost the sight of clarity. We are bombarded with every kind of thing coming our way as Christians, and we are told this, you can't believe that, do you? You fundamentalists are always believing that. You don't really believe that today. We're in a day of enlightenment. If this is the day of enlightenment, my dear friend, I dread to think what darkness looks like. But it's time for the church to stand up. So here's a man who's been touched the first time, and he says, I see men as trees, trees walking. I, I can see, but it's all a mixture. And Jesus said, it shouldn't be like that. Do you know you may have experienced the first touch from God that you can say, 
I can see, but you're not seeing clearly. And God simply says, I'm going to touch you again. I want you to begin to see again like you first saw. Some of us saw clearly when we first came to know him. And now that clarity seems to be faded. He says, I want to touch you again. I was going to ask how many people here are under 40 years of age. I've changed my mind. I would simply say that I'm old enough to remember. I'm still old enough to remember when I was 18. And people ask me today, some of the students around come to me and say, do you believe what you, do you still believe today what you believed when you were 18? I'd say, yes, but not with the same passion. And they say, oh, that's sad to hear. Well, I said, it's not less passion. <laughs> My passion is like on steroids. <laughs> Do I believe that? Of course I believe that. Yeah. Jesus is simply saying to this man, I want you to see clearly, and the Bible says he could, he could see his sight was restored that he could see at a clear distance. That's the meaning of the verb. But he could also see Christ clearly. Jesus has come to give us all in this place this morning a second touch. Sorry to shock you for the moment. I saw some of you leap there. But you say, well, that's the miracle, so, well, it follows on. Jesus then turns to disciples and says to them, well, lads, who do people think I am? Oh, well, some people say you're John the Baptist. Some people say you're Elijah. Some people say you're some of the prophets. They saw him as someone, but their vision wasn't clear. And then he says, but who do you say I am? Then Peter speaks up. You are Christ, the Son of the living God. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus tells this story. He says, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, Peter, but my Father has done so. That is the first time a declaration of who Jesus was and is, is made known. In other words, Peter's got 20-20 vision. 
the disciples have come from clarity. He's not John the Baptist. He's not Elijah. He's not one of the prophets. He actually is the Messiah, the one that was promised by the prophets, has suddenly arrived, and it is Christ standing before us. When you've seen him, you will have no problem making judgments upon this world. I don't mean judging the world, but making judgments upon things that have fed us through the media. You say, no, that's not right. Why? You've seen him. You won't have any question with regard to what is pure or impure, because he's pure. You won't have any questions between light and darkness because he is light. You'll be able to, there'll be, for instance, you may suddenly see movies advertised and you would say, that's a good movie. No, it's one I don't see. Yeah. Why? It's tainted with everything that's not like him. Do I have to sit and listen to foul and profane language on a movie? Do I want these years to hear those things? No. I don't need this vessel tainted with that. I'm a Christ person. Would I watch that movie if Jesus actually was sitting here besides me? Well, he's not sitting here, is he? He's sitting inside me. That's the problem. 2020 vision. The miracle comes before the revelation to the disciples. That is why Jesus performed the second touch. It was a miracle of pro progression. I want you to come away from John the Baptist. I want you to come away from Elijah. I want you to come from the prophets. I want you to see him and to see me as I am. So before you come to the revelation, Acts chapter 1 tells us these are the things that all that Jesus began to do. First, what he did and then he taught. He did and taught. Here you find in this miracle, he performs a miracle and then teaches. To the church this morning, we all need to see him clearly. What actually is this to you? Is it actually the Word of God or merely a book? I've said this story many, many times, many years ago. In, I went to visit an old minister friend in San Diego, California. I was with him for about half an hour because he wasn't long in this life before he went to be with Jesus. And after an interview with him, my final question was this. Could you tell me, what is it that I, as a young preacher, am going to face and other young leaders like I am in the world ahead of us? And he picked up his, his old Bible, held it up like this to me and said, Carrie, to you and to young ministers like you, it will be this. Will you allow the culture of your day to interpret this book? Or will you allow this book to interpret its culture? 
I didn't realize at the time that uh, that was a most significant prophetic word for my life and for our lives. Because today, the culture of the day has started in the church to interpret this book. There are things in you read, that you don't need to believe them anymore. That's old-fashioned. No. The Word of God is real. The Word of God is powerful. The Word of God is what you can trust and put your faith in. You can live by it because the Holy Spirit was the author of it. If you don't understand it, ask the Holy Spirit who was the author and simply say, please tell me the meaning of this word. And he will do that. Why? It's the time of the Holy Spirit. It's his day. Brazil is going to see a great awakening. We hear about God blessing, but there are many areas of Brazil that still need an outpouring of God. It's going to happen. I pray that you will find some young people from England or Wales coming to Brazil. England and Wales and Scotland and Ireland are going to see a visitation from God bigger than anything before. Arab nations are going to see a move of God that they've never seen. And you say, how can you say that it's uh, predicted in the prophets? You're praying for a revival, it's going to be worldwide. Why? How can you say it? It's because when you see and read the Word of God, what is not clear to those who just barely see, to those that can really see, it simply says, I'm praying, Lord, for the, all the world to be filled with your glory. And the Spirit says, it's going to happen. Father, I want to thank you that all of us as people this morning are part, a part of what you want to do. And therefore, I ask that you give each one of us a clarity of vision of seeing, of believing, of knowing, and understanding what your will is. I pray that every seat that is empty will by this time of the middle of next year be filled here and upstairs with people who have come to know you. I'm not interested, Father, of transferences in your kingdom. I want to see people born again into your kingdom. I want to thank you for the Holy Spirit who has come and the Holy Spirit who gives us the ability to witness for you effectively through sign, wonder, miracle, healing power.
but I pray that you'd give understanding to this church here of where to go in this area, where to plant, where to put energy, so that the energy expressed will mean a harvest harvested. Let the building of this house be so secure and strong that no brick, no individual person will have to be pulled out and put somewhere else. But this house will be built on a foundation and its structure so solidly in you that people could only see Christ manifest. I pray for all the traveling ministries that are here this morning, that every one of them, no matter what they are doing, will find a comfort and strength in you in who they are, not only in what they do. That this time here will be for them a time of discovering you in new ways, so that when they return to their homes, they will have something to take there because they've received something from here. Thank you for bringing them among us. Thank you that we can receive and drink from their cup. And I ask you to bless them today in health, in strength, in the capturing of their mind to keep it in focus, and above all else, for them to see fruit that remains. For all of us, let us be a true expression of you in this area where we live, that people can see and know there are a people that know the living God. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus for saving us. Thank you for baptizing us in your spirit. And thank you that you are the Christ of the second touch. Let people today experience renewal in their seeing, renewal in their spirit. Let us who are older not be in the place of we've given up and gone out to grass but we're older, more experienced, more alive, and more passionate, and ready to go wherever you want us to go. Because when you tell us to go, we will have the ability to do just that. We commit ourselves to you, and thank you, and thank you, and thank you, thank you. Father, in Jesus' name, amen.